Special thanks for this episode goes to Loretta Reeves, Kelly Weckman, Christine Koo, Aaron Larson, Mary Bryce, and Megan Rebus. Just as a note, this episode contains graphic depictions of emotional abuse, as well as references to physical and sexual abuse. If you think you'll find such content disturbing, well, that's on you. I mean, this episode is titled, I Don't Know Anything About Emotional Abuse. Like, when you go to the movies and you buy a ticket for snakes on a plane, do you go in the theater and get upset that you are seeing snakes on a plane? No. Come on. Get it together. You're an adult. Hey, I'm here with Dr. Loretta Reeves, and we are going to talk today about something called emotional abuse, which has gotten very popular on the internet. So welcome back to my podcast, Loretta. Thanks, Paige. I'm happy to be here. So first, what is emotional abuse? I would define emotional abuse as any persistent pattern of behaviors because sometimes, you know, we're all rude or grumpy and one occasion doesn't constitute emotional abuse. So it has to be a persistent pattern of behaviors that denigrates one of the people in the relationship or results in significant reduction in their mental health for some reason, particularly if it causes an imbalance in the relationship so that one person is at a disadvantage and having to work harder toward mutual goals. So emotional abuse is not just being mean to someone. Being mean can certainly be emotional abuse. One instance of meanness, I would say no, is not emotional abuse. We all make mistakes at some point. How many times would someone have to be mean to someone or act in an abusive way for you to consider it to be emotional abuse? Again, if it's a persistent pattern, hardly anybody is mean 100% of the time. And in fact, some of the patterns of abuse waver between being mean and then sometimes being overly generous and kind and affectionate. But if it's persistent enough that one person is feeling upset or suffering a lack of confidence, then I would argue that it's an emotional abuse. Very interesting. Thanks again for coming on to talk with me about this. I am excited to learn more. Just real quick, would you consider emotional abuse to be as bad as physical abuse? We don't need to talk about physical abuse because everybody knows what that is. It turns out that there are a number of studies that have compared the short and the long-term effects of emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. And it turns out that the depression and the anxiety that result from emotional abuse can actually be worse than that that results from physical abuse, a little bit less though than what results from sexual abuse. So it certainly looks as if being exposed to emotional abuse can have long-term effects on a person's mental health, particularly with regard to anxiety or depression. What does emotional abuse look like? What are some common emotionally abusive behaviors in relationships, in the workplace, in friendships? What does that look like? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up not only relationships, but also the workplace and friendships, because emotional abuse can take place in any kind of relationship and actually sadly does more often than we would like. So some of the things that I would consider emotional abuse are clearly verbal abuse, right? That sometimes it's necessary to confront people about something, especially say in the workplace, or if you're in a relationship with someone, you want to talk out an issue, but it should be done in a constructive way. One of my favorite 
marital therapist, Terry Reel, says that no interaction should fall beneath the level of basic respect. And that's a pretty tall order, right? You know, we're bound by our emotions. Sometimes we're grumpy. Sometimes we're less in control of what we say than others because we're not paying as much attention. But I do really believe that that's what we should strive for. So if you're confronting a situation in a way that denigrates the person, as opposed to allowing them, say, to keep their self-respect, there are ways to put things constructively if you need to confront somebody about something. Then I think a pattern of that, where you're constantly or consistently putting someone down or putting things in a much less tactful way than they should be put, that can be verbal abuse. Using dominance of any kind, and that takes myriad forms, sometimes very direct, right, where someone's trying to deliberately corral somebody else and force them to do something against their will. But it can also be very subtle, right? So complaining in a relationship about the other person's friends to the point where they then stop hanging out with their friends or don't confide in their friends as much. That's a kind of dominance as well. And certainly isolation of any sort or trying to encourage that isolation would be considered abuse and probably one of the main factors that factors into relational aggression. Ridiculing somebody, using secrets that they've told you in intimacy against them. And that's, again, a really subtle form of verbal abuse. Gaslighting, and that term is used sometimes quite wrongly. What gaslighting means is that you're trying to convince the other person that what they think is real is not. And so just lying in and of itself is not gaslighting, right? You're trying to convince somebody, oh, you didn't do something when you actually did. Gaslighting is trying to convince them that they're crazy. It comes from a film where a man was trying to convince his wife that she was crazy so that he could put her in a psychiatric ward and then get all her money. So trying to convince someone that they're crazy is different than lying to them. But gaslighting is clearly a form of abuse. I would argue that many forms of lying, for example, infidelity, are also abuse. A lot of things to unpack here right now, Loretta. All right, let's start with gaslighting being overused. I hear gaslighting, I'm not kidding, almost every single day in some way. I'm glad you find that funny. I don't think gaslighting is funny. You're gaslighting me right now in our interview. What is gaslighting? So it's when someone says, this is what I believe, this is what's true, and it's, it's not actually true. Is that what it is? It's more than just having a debate about what's true. That And the reason I'm laughing is because, yes, it is terribly overused. People cotton on to psychological terms, and then they're not always sure how to best define them or how to apply them. So gaslighting has become one of those catchphrases that everyone thinks they're using accurately. But gaslighting is not just having a debate about, well, who said what or what is true. It's trying to convince the other person that how you interpreted the situation indicates that you're kind of crazy. And so you're trying to chip away at somebody else's confidence in their own sanity. That's what gaslighting is. That reminds me, I remember it, it came from the Nazi Germany period when the Nazis were turning on the gaslights to make their victims think that they were crazy. That was a tactic used in the Holocaust, correct? So in relationships, there can be compromises that you need to make. Sometimes your partner may not want to see some of your friends or do some activities you like, and sometimes that's just a natural part of a relationship. At what point does that become abuse? You know, 
at what point does someone trying to help you to improve your life or, or change it or work together to create a relationship, when does that become abuse? All relationships involve compromise of some kind and they involve sacrifice, right? So if you're investing in a relationship, there's no way you're going to have the same full amount of time that you had before that relationship to meet with friends or to engage in independent activities. So sometimes if you're choosing then, I'm going to invest in my relationship, which means I am going to go out with my partner on a Saturday night and not my friends like I used to, that choice is clearly not abuse. If one person, however, is persistently trying to get someone to give up something that they like and never compromising themselves, then I would argue you're starting to get into the arena of abuse. So that if one person is free to see their friends and family, but they're putting pressure on the other person or denigrating the other person's friends so that they don't go see their friends, then I would say now you're starting to get into an attempt at a power imbalance. Very interesting. What are power dynamics in a relationship? You know, what are some typical power dynamics that someone might have when they are dating or friends with someone? I would argue that in virtually all situations, let's just talk about dyads, right? Two people, that there's always power that's involved in a healthy relationship, at least between two adults, say, then there should be relatively equal negotiating power. There are, of course, going to be some dyads where equal power is not true, for example, in an employee with his or her boss or a parent and a child. But in an emotional relationship, there should be roughly equal power dynamics. Does that mean that they're equal in all domains? No, right? So in some marriages, for example, one person will do all the shopping and the other person does the cleaning. Or one person takes more care of the children and the other person takes care of paying the bills. So you can certainly divide up areas related to the relationship, but there should be roughly equivalent effort. There should be roughly equivalent investment. If you're in a relationship with someone who is lazy, right? This is a bit of a silly question. Not at all what we're going to get into on this podcast. If you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't clean up after themselves, doesn't do a lot of physical or emotional labor, would you consider that to be emotional abuse? Like, let's say, you know, I was dating someone really lazy and I had to clean up after them all the time and I had to constantly plan activities and I had to do, this never happened to me in my life. Thanks for smiling. Would you consider that to be emotional abuse? No, I wouldn't. A lot of it depends on intentions and we all come in with different values. So some people come into a relationship with very clear goals that they must be in a pristine house. And for other people, that's not quite as important, right? That they may decide, oh, it's okay to have a messy house for a while because there are these other things I'm interested in and the values there just differ. If you're in a relationship, obviously at some point you're going to have to come around to an understanding, but I wouldn't say that that's emotional abuse. Plus, we all come into relationships with some skills that are stronger than others. And, you know, that's part of negotiating the relationship and trying to come to some middle ground where both people are at least moderately happy about it. So that in and of itself, no, I would not consider abuse. Where rubber meets the road. What are some typical power dynamics you'd see in the average romantic relationship? What does a healthy power dynamic look like and what does an unhealthy power dynamic look like? 
I come back to the quote from Terry Real that all interactions should be at least above the level of basic respect. So does that mean that arguments will never crop up or disagreements about how to spend one's time or money should never crop up? No, of course not. But that when there are those disagreements, that you respect the other person's opinion, that you listen, even if they don't convince you to change your mind, that you at least listen and give them the same respect that you would hope that they would give you. When you talk about level of respect, we're jumping ahead here, but you've told me in the past that attention withdrawal is emotionally abusive. When you're in a relationship or when you're getting to know someone and the person stops communicating, you've told me that you believe that to be emotionally abusive. What do you think about ghosting? You know, I've always thought that if someone goes on a first date with someone and he asks or she asks out that person again and they don't say anything back, I think that's the answer. I think the aggressiveness or demanding a reason why is emotional abuse or control. I know we differ on that, but at what point does ghosting become inappropriate? Personally, I think after the third date or third time you spend time with someone, You owe someone a reason why you don't want to see them again, or at least the acknowledgement that you don't want to see someone again. What do you think about that? And also, what does attention withdrawal, what does that look like in a long-term relationship? Can it ever be normal or healthy, or is it always emotionally abusive? Okay, that's really three questions, Paige. (laughs) So I'm going to tackle one at a time. The attention withdrawal, obviously, you cannot, even in the best of relationships, pay complete attention to your partner all of the time. There's also a huge divide between extroverts and introverts where it's widely thought that, oh, introverts don't like people. That's not true at all. What happens with introverts is they like to be around people, but then it drains them. So they need to go off and be by themselves for a little while and recharge. Extroverts, on the other hand, get aroused by being around more people. So right there with personality traits, you have a real disconnect where one person is going to need to withdraw just for their own mental health, while the extrovert is left wondering, wait, why doesn't he or she want to be with me? That's not abusive, right? Obviously, it requires some communication. Introverts and extroverts, in my opinion, don't always fully understand each other. And so if you're in a relationship with someone who's of the opposite personality type, you have to communicate. It's also okay to say, I need to take some time for myself. I know we usually go on a Sunday morning hike, but I really feel the need to just go off on my own and read today. That's perfectly okay. In the midst of an argument, it's okay to say, I'm feeling really heated right now and I think I need a cooling off period of half an hour. That's okay. Just communicate. So those would not be abusive. Silent treatment is abusive, where you refuse to talk to the other person without indicating to them, hey, I just need some time to myself. Because we feel rejection in the same parts of the brain that we feel physical pain. So feeling as if you've been rejected, especially by a close romantic partner, is painful. And if you at least know the reason, or you can say, okay, I know that the person is going to go for a walk, and then they're going to come back in two hours, and then we can talk. It's much more manageable. With regard to ghosting, why do people find it so difficult in this age of texting to simply spend 15 seconds to type one sentence and say, hey, enjoyed the date, but I'm not really feeling romantically inclined? 
hand me the mic, roll the tape. Sometimes people get very angry when you say something like, you were so nice, but I didn't feel a romantic connection. Sometimes they can argue with you. Sometimes they can say, no, Paige, I really felt a romantic connection. You're wrong. This never happened to me. You don't owe them any further explanations beyond that. And if they continue to ask for further explanations, then I don't think that you are under any obligation to supply them for a number of reasons, right? That oftentimes, perhaps there was something about the person that you just found very off-putting. And if they're being belligerent and asking you, well, what was it about me? You don't necessarily have to give them that explanation, especially if you've only been on a date or two or three. A way in which you might want to give them more explanation is if a person says, hey, did I do anything wrong? Because, you know, I want to stay in the dating pool. If you can give me feedback, you know, I would like it. And then you're still under no obligation. But it would be a kindness to say, well, you know, maybe you moved a little too quickly. Maybe you don't want to do that. If someone is being belligerent when all you've said is, hey, enjoy the date, but I'm not feeling a connection, you don't owe them any further explanation. At that point, yes, you can cut off contact and even block them. But oftentimes if one person is interested and then they're waiting for the other person to call them or to text them, there's sometimes, you know, hours or days of feeling kind of tortured. So if in 15 seconds you could just treat the other person with respect and say, hey, just not feeling it, but, you know, I wish you well. Why would you not do that? I, I think, you know, it behooves all of us to just treat everyone else with respect. And then if they continue to be obnoxious, yeah, you're under no obligation to them. Word. For the record, for everyone listening to my podcast, I'm very sweet and respectful. There are just some instances where I'm like, okay, it would have probably been better to just not have talked to that person. When it comes to attention withdrawal in long-term relationships, like let's say you're in a marriage and someone stops giving attention entirely because of something that's happened in their life, like they've lost a job or a parent, and maybe the withdrawal has gone on a bit longer than what is considered normal, you know, past a grieving period, would you consider that to be emotionally abusive? No. Obviously, in long-term relationships, you're going to go through ups and downs emotionally as a couple and also individually, right? bad things happen in life or things can affect one person more strongly than they can affect another. And it does behoove us if you're in a long-term relationship with someone to be patient and perhaps to ask, do you need some help? You know, can I do something for you? Do you think therapy would be worthwhile uh, if they're grieving over something? And so obviously there are going to be ups and downs in relationships. If one person is withdrawing and there doesn't seem to be a reason for it, and they refuse to discuss the withdrawal, then it may not be emotional abuse outright, but it's clearly not going to be very helpful to the relationship. Noted. All right, this is the last one. I'll be like, is this an emotionally abusive relationship behavior? When you are in a relationship with someone, sometimes there can be things that you require that are deal breakers for you that the other person might engage with. So for example, I won't date smokers. I feel like that's a pretty common, non-offensive example. I tell someone I'm not going to date you if you're a smoker. They have to stop smoking or I won't date them. That's very socially acceptable. What about things like improving your health and fitness, getting more involved in certain activities? When you're in a relationship with someone and someone keeps 
putting a yard line up and maybe moving it being like, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this for me to be happy with you. At what point does that go from a standard you might have set for yourself before the relationship begins to something that's emotionally abusive? I think it's a real danger that if someone keeps chipping away and moving the goalposts or saying, you must do this for me to stay with you, it certainly runs the risk of being abusive. That by and large, if you're going to get into a relationship with someone, you should accept them for who they are. Not that you can't work out issues over time, but largely you should accept them for who they are and not say, oh, well, now that we're in a relationship, you have to get thinner or you have to get fitter or you have to read more academic books for me to stay with you. That's abusive because you're then basically saying, I'm not invested unless you do these things and tap dance for me. And that's not okay. And tap dance for me. It's so funny that you use that as an example. This is the only time I'm going to mention this on this episode. I just think it is relevant. And, you know, if someone else is in a relationship like this, I'd want them to hear your response. You know that I was in a very emotionally abusive relationship. As a person, I'm pretty flexible. If someone tells me, Paige, I'd really like it if you picked up this activity or read this book, I'm honestly pretty game for it. I don't think it's emotionally abusive. I don't really care. It's no skin off my back. You know, this relationship I was in, this person kept giving me things to change about myself. And at first they were really good. They were like, Paige, you'd look so much better if your posture was improved. That's true. Paige, you'd sound a lot better if you stopped using ums and likes so much. I do. Lots of things improved in my life after that. And there were really good things, I would say, that I was given constructive criticism on at first. And I was really happy to follow them, and I kept getting this feedback loop from the world of this is good, this is good. And eventually, it just got so nitpicky that I was miserable. I remember getting out of it and just feeling like I'd gotten out of a bear trap, right? It went from improve your posture to, Paige, you need to practice music for three hours a day so I can enjoy your company. Paige, you need to take all of these improv classes because I don't think you're very funny, right? There were negative criticisms about me that are frankly not true. I'm an incredibly witty person. I just remember one of the last items I was criticized on was my inability to rap. I am sorry if anyone in the world thought I would be a good rapper. That was was a huge sticking point, the fact that I could not play a rap character in these improv scenarios he kept throwing at me. That's obviously emotionally abusive. At what point does someone go from helping your partner to get better as a person, which I'm an advocate of, you know, if there's something I'm doing wrong, I want my partner to be like, Paige, you should improve this. When does it become inappropriate and abusive? I'm going to do a little rap for everyone at the end of the podcast because I had to practice things. Yeah, we're all going to laugh at it. Okay. So first, if someone's doing that, my first response is run as if your hair is on fire. Even with the posture? Yes. Did you ask him for advice about yourself and how you should improve yourself? No, I'm a perfect angel. There's nothing to improve. If you did not ask for feedback and your posture was clearly not affecting the relationship itself, there is no reason for him to do anything more than say, oh, you know, you might feel better if you stood up straighter. And then if you choose to take that advice, all very fine and good, but if it was unsolicited, don't say it more than once because then, yes, it is denigrating the other person. If there's then a persistent set of behaviors where the person is telling you, oh, and do this and do that and do that, 
The analogy I use is of the old Westerns, you know, where two gunfighters would meet outside of a saloon and one would pull out the gun and start shooting at the other person's feet to make them dance. That's what emotional abuse is. Like, dance for me. Here, do this, do that, do this. Maybe then I'll be interested in you. That's abusive. And after about the second time, I would just recommend to people that they say, obviously, text them, I don't want to see you anymore. Interesting. All right, everyone, that's the only time you will hear my personal life on this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. So you've told me that all abuse comes from the desire for power. Why? Why do some people have a greater desire for power? And, you know, can that ever be a good thing? There are clearly a certain percentage of people in the world who are narcissists or cluster Bs where they do want to have power over someone else. And that's what fuels them. Other people are just not terribly emotionally intelligent. And so they may not realize that their behaviors are harming somebody else. And if it's pointed out to them, they may get defensive or aggressive until they stop and think about it. I've known a number of people who said, oh yeah, when I was younger, I was mean to my girlfriends or my boyfriends. And then they learn over time. That's not okay. Life is a learning experience. But if, again, there's this persistent pattern of needing to be in control at the expense of the other person and needing to have power, even in subtle ways, and by subtle ways, I mean covert ways. For example, if one person is always playing the victim to get the other person to do something for them. So, for instance, if that past date had said, ah, you know... I really like being with you, but it's kind of embarrassing when we're with my friends and then you're slouching and they make themselves the victim of your slouching, which has nothing to do with their relationship, really. That's a subtle form of trying to get power as well, because oftentimes what people who desire power do is to seek out people with what Sandra Brown called super traits. That is, they're very conscientious. They're very empathetic. They really like to do things for other people. They're heavily responsible in life. And so then if you choose one of those people and play the victim, of course, somebody with super traits is then going to try and please you. And over time, that can develop a dynamic where the person who's playing the victim is having all the power at the expense of the efforts of somebody else. Can you tell me more about super traits? What do those look like and how easy is it for you to spot them than other people? You are obviously someone with super traits. Well, thank you. I do think once you educate yourself about emotional abuse, the dynamics underlying emotional abuse then get almost impossible to ignore, that you can pick it out immediately. So remember the little kid in The Sixth Sense who said, I see dead people. Once you educate yourself about emotional abuse, you will start to realize even subtle forms of it and be able to at least identify it and deal with it a little more clearly. The super traits comes from Sandra Brown. She wrote a book, I think it's Psychopaths and the Women Who Love Them. And obviously, she's focusing on women who are married to oftentimes narcissistic men, but there are plenty of times when men are married to narcissistic women as well, and they use exactly the same strategies. So the literature tends to be heavily oriented towards women who are with abusive men, but I think emotional abuse of men is underreported. 
And so ignore the pronouns and just focus on the facts and what the research shows. And what she found is that narcissistic men would tend to gravitate towards women who had super traits. So they're highly responsible, smart, they're conscientious, they're very empathetic, they oftentimes are very successful. And then what they do over time is to just chip away at that. And one of the things that Sandra Brown reported is, you know, she would see these women who had started out just very confident and very impressive in their work lives. And then they would come into counselors' offices just decimated and feeling low self-esteem and tired because they were being chipped away at by the narcissistic partner in their life. Why do these men pick women like this? Why don't they pick easier targets? Or are these women by nature easy targets? I would say these women and men are oftentimes easy targets. That being empathetic means you're going to be connected to other people. And as a result, you're going to want those connections to other people. One thing that Sandra Brown did find in conjunction with some researchers from Purdue University, I believe, is that if a narcissistic man is dating someone who does not have those super traits and doesn't tolerate his nonsense, they will dump her and move on to find someone with super traits. So they deliberately pick out people who are going to satisfy their needs. Very interesting. I've got a few follow-up questions. One, to tie it back to ghosting, we've had a lot of conversations about ghosting. I have an interesting recollection of something related to this. You told me once the second someone gives you an indicator that they're going to be abusive, you should block and not talk to them. Don't engage them in any way. Don't give them anything from you. Yet at the same time, you're also saying that ghosting is emotionally abusive behavior. So which is it, Loretta? You are on the hot mic. Tell me. No, I have only told you to block them after you have already broken up with them or indicated to them. So so you are not going to catch me on that one. There is no reason why you can't just text someone, I don't think this is working for me. Then after that, if they are abusive, then block them. But there is no reason not to send a text. We are all on our phones hours per day, hours per day. And just treat other people with respect, even if they haven't been behaving 100% well, treat them with respect. You got it. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. It's a whole song. You can insert Aretha Franklin there. So speaking of respect, I remember hearing you say that it is always the less invested person who has more power. Sometimes the less invested person is not the abuser. So the less invested person could potentially have more power than the abuser. But typically in these dynamics, the abuser has the power. So tell me, I'm getting kind of tripped on these wires here. Can you elaborate on this? If there's a dyad and one person wants the relationship more than the other, then the person who's less invested has more power because they can always leave or it's become evident that they are less invested. And as a result, they will probably have an easier time leaving. Some people do wield that less investment in an abusive way, that they make it very clear to their partner that I'm less invested unless you do these things for me. So your former date who said, well, if you want me to stay with you, even if it's an implicit threat, you have to improve your posture and you have to learn to rap. That is him indicating I'm less invested. So... He pulls out his gun and he shoots at your feet to make you tap dance for him. 
Now, sometimes a relationship will end up with one person becoming less invested, perhaps because they've become disenchanted and, you know, they're thinking of leaving, but they haven't yet. And that's a sad situation. It's not necessarily abusive. You know, maybe they're biding their time until the right time to break up or maybe they haven't fully decided yet. That's not the same. If you're wielding that less investment as a way to get more power, then that's abusive. But if it's simply a natural consequence of having been together for a while and one person is trying to withdraw but isn't fully committed to withdrawing yet, you know, obviously that's sad, but it's not abuse. It's so interesting that you say that. I'm loath to use my personal life as an example, so we'll stop there and I'll move on to other questions. Only that in a non-related-to-me way, sometimes when someone is shooting at your feet to make you dance, something that I find very interesting is that when you go, oh my god, I am so tired, I cannot rap, I cannot change my smile, you know, I actually really like the way I am, and you're like, I'm done. Something really interesting happens with the other person, which is that... They immediately apologize and say, oh, no, no, you're wonderful. Don't ever leave me. I love you. And they are very loving. They are very kind. What is this called? It is certainly a cycle of abuse, and it's a very common one. It's common in physical abuse as well, where someone will be physically abusive And then when it becomes evident that the other person might leave or won't give them what they had been getting before, that they will then apologize and bring flowers or do something extra in order to keep the person there. So abusers oftentimes will want to keep the connection. It's just that they want to do it on an uneven playing field. And that's a way to keep the person invested. Part of the cycle of abuse is that intermittent reinforcement. Because if you've been tap dancing for somebody and then you're tired and you decide I'm not doing this anymore and the other person should be accepting me and then they apologize, that's similar to what happens with slot machines. So what we know in psychology is if a rat presses a lever and gets a pellet every single time and then you stop giving the pellet, it will press it a few more times and then go, heck, I give up. But if a rat presses a lever, gets a pellet, then it has to press it four more times to get a pellet. And then the next time it's seven more times. And then the next time it's 16 more times. And then it's two times. So it's always unpredictable when they're going to get a pellet. They press the pellet much faster. And then even after you as the experimenter have decided, oh, I'm not going to give this rat any more pellets, it just keeps pressing the lever. And that's exactly what happens in abuse. That if you're not sure when you're going to get reinforcement, For example, getting an apology and then the person's really affectionate after they've been either physically or emotionally abusive to you, it's a way to keep you invested in the relationship and to have you keep pressing that relationship lever, hoping, well, next time I might get reinforcement. Next time I might get reinforcement. Few questions. One, how long do abusers typically wait in a relationship to begin the cycle of abuse? I think that varies dramatically on the person and on the nature of the relationship. There are people who can keep their masks up for between 12 and 24 months. So at least some relationship advocates say you really should not be committing permanently to anyone until at least two years is up, simply because some abusers can keep up this mask of being 
wonderful and attentive for two years. And especially if you're not trained to pay attention to minor warning signs, you could end up in a marriage or a house mortgage with somebody who then turns and starts to become more abusive. What are these minor warning signs? What are the origin red flags that someone is going to be abusive? For me, I've already talked about it. For me, it was when I was given a copy of Nips Up, which is a book on how to improve your posture by holding your nipples high up. I'm adding that because it's very juicy. Thanks for making that face. Again, it's a great book. Anyone you want to improve your posture, Nips Up. It fixed mine. I've, I've forgotten the question. The question is about nipples, obviously. No, it's it's... It's on the minor warning signs, the little little indicators that someone gives that they're going to be abusive. Okay, thanks. I was just shocked into silence by the nipples up reference. The small warning signs are slight denigrations, using pity to get you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise have done. So for example, you're planning to go out with your friends on a Friday night, and then all of a sudden your partner says, oh, you're going to leave me alone. Oh, well, no, go ahead. And pulls a pity party to try and convince you, at least subconsciously, to not go out with your friends when that's what the arrangement had been. Any violent outbursts of anger over something minor I would consider at least a yellow flag, trying to isolate you in any way. Again, this can be very subtle, but trying not to have you call your family or saying, oh, I prefer to spend Thanksgiving with just you. Do we really have to see your family? In certain circumstances, that might be acceptable if, you know, for 16 years, you've seen the person's family every Thanksgiving, and then you just want a quiet Thanksgiving, that's fine. But if there's any attempts to isolate you and keep you from things that are important to you, which includes hobbies, I would consider those at least yellow flags. And they're subtle, so you have to pay attention. Thanks for doing this. This is super interesting. How many yellow flags would have to pop up for you would determine it to be a runaway, runaway like an injured gazelle runs from a cheetah, get out of there, shoe mouse? I think a lot of people are not necessarily as relationship savvy as they should be, right? Relationships are a learning experience. And sometimes you have to fail at some before you fully realize, oh, this is how I should behave in a healthy relationship. So if there are yellow flags, I would at least very respectfully talk to someone about them, see what their response is, see if they changed over time. And oftentimes people can't just change on a dime, that it may take several different reminders before you're able to get someone to stop showing the same yellow flag. Again, you have to pay attention to patterns, right? So if someone is only showing one yellow flag and says, oh, I'll work on it, and then they don't fully succeed, that in and of itself is not really a reason to give up on the relationship, especially if it's going well in other ways. But if you start to see repeated yellow flags, that clearly point to someone denigrating you, chipping away at your self-esteem, trying to isolate you, trying to get you to change, right? One of the things that happens with groomers is that they try and pick someone who is young enough or malleable enough that they can shape the person into who they want them to be. That's not a healthy relationship, that you should accept who the other person is at their core. And then if there are issues that crop up, you work on them together. 
Like one person doesn't try and shape the other person. I have a confession. I was dating someone for a brief period of time who was a vegetarian, and I kept eating meat around them because I'm a carnivore. And by the end of the relationship, he was no longer a vegetarian. Was I an emotional abuser? I assume at no point did you say, unless you start eating meat, I'm going to leave you. No, I just made my meat super delicious. That sounds really inappropriate. I just made lots of delicious, 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 delicious meat-based dishes because I'm you know, an amazing cook. And the person just couldn't help it. And by the end of the relationship, they were eating salmon. They were eating steak. They were having a, a real, that's not emotional abuse. Well, it depends. So if you were having the person over to cook and cooking for them and not accommodating that they preferred to eat vegetarian... Can you tell me what is the cycle of abuse and what is each stage in the cycle of abuse? And also, do the stages always happen in the same order? Do abusers always follow the same pattern for them or can they differ? Can they just kind of shake them up? Obviously, there are no strict laws with regard to the cycle of abuse. But usually what will happen is there will be this period of calm and romance. And then over time, tensions will build until there's a major incident. And the major incident can be, again, either physical abuse or emotional abuse. Then the two reconcile. And as we've talked about before, one of the most addictive relationship patterns is for someone who is anxiously attached and then someone who is avoidantly attached to be in a relationship where they stick with each other because the abuse cycle is just so addictive. The reconciliation can then just feel fabulous, much like finally putting a quarter in the slot machine and lo and behold, you know, hundreds of quarters come popping out. But it's not going to be a state where they can last. If it's an abusive relationship, it's going to keep cycling through calm, incident, reconciliation, and then calm and tensions starting to build again. Yeah, girl, I remember avoidance from our last podcast. Two hours of commentary about avoidance on the cutting room floor, Loretta. You really hate avoidance. When you look at the cycle of abuse with the tension building and the incidents and the reconciliation and the calm, do abusers create anchors during these cycles to keep the victim stuck or trapped with them, right? Like having children, getting animals. I remember at the end of my emotionally abusive relationship, the person was really impressing upon me that he wanted to have children with me, that he wanted to get a dog together. Can you tell me about that? What does that typically look like? Yes. Well, maybe I spend too much time on Reddit, but baby trapping does appear to be a method whereby one person traps the other into staying in the relationship sometimes against their will. Another way that it can happen is for one partner to make the other financially dependent on them. For example, by saying, oh, well, you know, now that we're married, I expect you to stay home and do all the cooking and I'll supply all of the money for us and I'll take charge of the finances since I'm the one bringing in the money. So again, any attempt to keep one person on less than equal footing without it being balanced somewhere else is potentially dangerous. Now, some couples can navigate one person being more financially adept than the other, but usually it then is balanced by the partner who's not having the finances brought into the household gets power in some other way. So for example, they make more decisions about the children or about the state of the house. So everything in the end should be roughly balanced. 
Do you feel like stay-at-home moms are more likely to be victims of abuse? That's a tough question. Anybody can be the victim of emotional abuse. Anybody. Stay-at-home mothers obviously give up financial power. And in a healthy relationship, they will then gain power or decision-making in another realm. So, for example, they will make more of the decisions about the house and perhaps even where they go on vacation and where the kids go to school. And the same can be true for stay-at-home dads. I've known stay-at-home dads who gave up their jobs to stay home with the children. So whether it's the mother or the father, it doesn't really matter. There is the risk for an imbalance to take place when one partner has less financial stability than the other. Does it always happen? No, but I do think it's something people have to pay attention to when they're deciding how their relationship is going to play out, especially if they get married and especially if they have children. Noted. So who is at the highest risk for emotional abuse? Is it just the people with the super traits you were talking about earlier? Sadly, people with a history of childhood abuse are probably at greater risk for abuse within their adult life. That what they have found is that people who have high ACEs scores, that's adverse childhood experiences, and there's a particular scale, you can easily Google it to see what your ACEs score is, that people who have higher ACEs scores, which indicates they grew up in households with a lot of chaos or they were physically or sexually abused, or there was a history of crime in their childhood families, then they sadly are also at risk of being abused in adulthood. And so it's compounding. The reasons for that are myriad. One is if you grew up with childhood abuse, the chaos of abuse feels normal. If you grew up with childhood abuse, chances are your self-esteem may not be all that it should be. And so you're willing to tolerate bad behavior toward yourself to just keep a connection. It could be that people start to get addicted to the chaos. And so that whole cycle of blow up and then reconciliation, calm, and then tensions start to build again can be very addictive. And since that's what they're used to, that's what they stay in. You might punch me for saying this. I should have come up with a better metaphor of some kind. If someone grows up with a high A score, They get into a relationship and maybe the person is not naturally abusive. Will they make the person abusive? Like, is this the anxious, secure person? Like, an anxious person can make a secure person a little bit avoidant sometimes. What do you think about this? Okay, so the sense I get is that you're asking someone who's grown up with abuse, and so they have a high ACEs score, could they then make their partner abusive if they hadn't been abusive before? Nobody makes anyone be abusive. It's a choice that you make. And sometimes people don't do it consciously, right? I think a lot of people are not terribly self-aware and they don't really realize what is necessary for a healthy relationship, but nobody makes anybody be abusive. Word. For the record, I agree with her. I thought it would just be an interesting question. Very obviously, We see people sometimes get into abusive relationships over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like, come on, girl, stop dating people if you're just going to date people who are abusive. I place maybe too high of weight on someone being self-responsible and handling themselves and not getting into abusive relationships. Why do some people, why do they keep seeking out people who are abusive? Why does that happen? Again, I mean, it's an addictive cycle. And so there are some people, if you don't pay attention, if you don't do the self-awareness work that you need to, 
if you don't practice healthy relationships, and that starts with friendships. So that if you're practicing healthy relationships with your friendships, probably you're going to be less likely to be in a romantic relationship that becomes abusive. And it's this constant learning curve. So one is to pay attention. For many people, therapy helps. For many people, listening to podcasts helps. For many people, reading self-help books helps. But you then have to put it into play. And I do think that if you do the work, it becomes much easier to leave a relationship, even if you're attached, once the signs of abuse start to show themselves, that you become much less tolerant over time with being treated that way. So speaking of tolerant and being treated a certain way, what is it called when you're in an abusive relationship and you maybe have a reaction to abuse and you say or do something mean and the person uses it as leverage over you to abuse you? What advice would you give for someone in an abusive relationship that does something like that? I think you are only in control of your own behavior. And so if someone is being abusive to you, don't be abusive back. There are ways to say things. You can certainly withdraw yourself from the situation and say that you're doing so. But I don't think it's ever justified to simply say something rude because someone's been abusive to you. Will we sometimes do it just in the heat of passion? Yes, of course, we're all going to not be able to control ourselves 100% of the time, but then you apologize as soon as you can and go back to being the kind of person that you want to be. I would agree with you because otherwise victims get into what we've called the self-blame effect. I've heard you talk about this in lectures. Can you tell me about the self-blame effect and how victims might you know, be convinced that there's something wrong with them or maybe that they're the abusive one? Obviously, somebody who is having their self-confidence chipped away by being told that they're less than adequate all the time is then perhaps going to run the risk of turning it internally, where they think, okay, there must be something wrong with me. That's why I'm being abused. But all that does is to keep them further stuck. The other reason not to respond abusively if someone is being abusive to you, to withdraw from the situation instead, is because then you can either think to yourself, oh, geez, well, now I'm as bad as that person, or the abuser will say, well, look at what you did now. And then that self-blame just keeps you stuck, that the best thing to do is, if you can do it safely, withdraw from the situation. I would agree. I think just, you know, being upfront with everyone listening to my podcast, the second you see any behavior like this, I'm in agreement with Laura. Say, it's not you, it's me. Or you can say, you know, it's you, whatever. I don't care what you do. Then block and remove all access this person has to you. That is the best thing you can do because otherwise that person is going to try to baby trap you and get animals together and do weird stuff. I don't know. What is Darvo? Darvo is a really effective effective technique in too many cases for, again, keeping the person who's being abused invested in the relationship when it is to their best benefit to leave. So that if someone performs an emotionally abusive act or a physically abusive act, the DARVO refers to deny, attack, reverse victim, and offender. And there are extreme cases of this in like the crime analogs. So for example, there's a man named Castro, who I believe it was in Cincinnati, kidnapped teenagers as young as 14. At least one of them was one of his daughter's friends and kept them for years, raping them, physically abusing them, emotionally abusing them 
Finally, they were able to escape when he was out and they ran to a neighbor's and the whole thing got unearthed. He ended up in prison. And when he was about to be sentenced, he pulled the extreme Darvo. So one, he denied that he had done anything wrong. He then attacked the victims and said that they had been abusive to him. And then he reversed victim and offender. Now, this is a really clear case where 14-year-olds cannot give consent, and they certainly did not give consent to be trapped in a house, unable to leave for years. But he played the victim. And in emotional relationships, that can sometimes be a really good way to keep the person who's being abused in the relationship because now they have to prove themselves again. It's back to that tap dance. But abusers do it all the time. So it's important to pay attention to Darvo when it happens, that if it's pretty clear one person has done something wrong and then they either gaslight you, oh, no, I don't think that that's how things actually went down. You must be crazy. And, you know, all of our friends know that you're somewhat hysterical, or that they deny or minimize what happened. And then they themselves play the victim. For example, in one study where they asked college students about instances where there had been Darvo, the abusive person said, Now I have to suffer the consequences of all our friends turning on me because of what you told them. And Darvo is the clearest sign that you should run away from a relationship. Yes, it's very clear-cut, Aretta, but the world is not always divided into good people and death eaters. It's not like these abusers walk around with a monocle and a creepy mustache, and, you know, they're sometimes hiding in plain sight. can be very spooky, I would say, to identify one. What are some exit strategies you would advocate for for people who are trying to leave emotionally abusive relationships? We are both big fans of the tell someone no thanks cut off all access. And by the way, despite what I said earlier, that's actually what I do in practice. I was just playing the devil's advocate for Loretta. Do not get it twisted. I'm a nice person. How would you recommend people leave abusive relationships when it's not so cut and dry? When maybe they have children together or a mortgage or a puppy? What do they do? Take the dog and run. Yeah, especially once there are children involved, it's much more difficult to extricate oneself. Or if one is completely financially dependent on one's partner, And again, this can happen to both males and females. It does become harder to extricate yourself. The more ties you have, the more entrenched you are, oftentimes the logically more difficult it is to leave. And people in emotionally abusive relationships are at their greatest danger as they're leaving, which means you probably need to get advice from professionals. So I have had a number of friends who have been in emotionally abusive relationships One of my good friends and neighbors just got a restraining order against her emotionally abusive boyfriend. And I said, you need to call SAFE, S-A-F-E, in Austin here and get advice because they will give you legal advice. They will give you all kinds of practical advice about how to extricate yourself. And don't try and do it alone. There are people out there who are very well-versed in how to get out of abusive relationships. And even if it hasn't been physical, there is the risk for some emotionally abusive relationships to turn physical once the abuser no longer thinks that they have power over that person and can lure them back. So there are danger signs that you need to pay attention to. The abuser, once somebody has left, is going to try lots of strategies to engage that person again. And they tend to go through a cycle of charm, pity, rage. And it's not always in the exact same order. 
the charm is trying to lure somebody back by being appealing and saying, oh, I'm sorry, and here's what I'll do for you, or complimenting them and trying to build them back up again. The rage cycle is when they start to realize, okay, I'm losing control here. And you start to see really extreme emotions. And of course, that's more likely to be tied to physical abuse. People, especially women, are at greatest risk of being killed when they are leaving an abusive relationship. And then the pity is where they will try and engage you in any way possible by making you feel sorry for them. Oh, look, you've left me alone for the holidays. And what did I do to deserve this? Basically, it's like flinging spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. They will use charm, pity, or rage to try and get a reaction out of the other person to maintain control so that the person doesn't leave. Why don't they just find a new victim? Why do they keep going back to their old ones? Why don't they go, okay, I messed it up with this person. Time to go get my suckers into someone else. Like, Why do they keep going back to old victims and trying to lure them back in? The abusers are subject to the slot machine analogy too, right? That if that relationship, even though the person has left, gave them satisfaction in the past and they were able to manipulate the other person into giving them things that satisfied them, then they're going to keep trying and pressing that lever until they get those things back. And almost all humans, except for economists, are subject to the sunken costs fallacy. That is that if you've already sunk a lot of investment into something, that you don't want that wasted. And so you have to keep trying. So for instance, imagine that you put some money into the stock market and then the stock that you bought just keeps going down and down and down. Well, you think, oh, well, it's got to go back up at some point and I don't want to lose all the money that I have. But if you keep holding that stock, you're actually going to lose more. But people think, oh, I've invested so much, I have to stick with this scenario. And it's typically not a good idea in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Loretta, I'm going to be honest. Most of the people I know who have survived abusive relationships have been people who've been very aware of them. People who are like, what? we all grew up with Twilight. We all know what abusive relationships look like. Even if you know about it, you can still fall victim to it. Why? Oh, absolutely. I do think that you can know what counts as abuse and then still find it hard to extricate yourself. However, when you're saying that most people, even if they know about things like the sunken cost fallacy, are still subject to them, yes, but experts are not become more of an expert in relationships so that you do not fall subject to these things. Now, that can take a number of years. I would say it took me decades to not only realize what's abusive, because I think I knew that from a very early age, but to not ever tolerate it again. In fact, there's a dating book that says part of the success in getting to a really good relationship is knowing when to veto one that's not. And everybody can train themselves. All right, one yellow flag, fine. Maybe two can be worked on. But if I keep seeing yellow flags, I should just leave because this is going to be too much effort. My automatic veto now is when someone is rude to the wait staff. Anytime I see that happen, I'm out. Would this be an indicator of someone that's going to be emotionally abusive towards me if they're unkind to our waitress or waiter or coffee shop employees, if they're short and rude? I told my friends about this, and he was like, Paige, those people are just from New York. They're not emotional abusers. And I was like, well, we're Texas now. you got to change your attitude, dude. What do you think about that? 
I don't think that everybody who is rude to waitstaff is necessarily going to become an emotional abuser, but here's why it's at least a yellow flag. That when you're in a restaurant, somebody is waiting on you. That's a power dynamic. You're in charge. They are dependent for part of their salary on pleasing you. So if you are abusive to somebody who is dependent on you for their wages, that is a sign that, yes, there's diminished empathy and that they potentially are very well aware of that power dynamic and they're willing to use it to their advantage. It is not that hard to say please and thank you, everybody. A guy got mad at me for kind of ghosting him, but it was because he was rude to the waiter. And it's like, if you didn't have the decency to say please and thank you, know, I'll, I'll stop. All right. A few questions, then we can talk about infidelity because I know that is the most interesting part of this subject to you. Do you think that an abuser can ever truly redeem themselves? If so, how? And would you personally give someone a second chance? So we're keeping it separate from cheating right now because we're going to go on to that in a few minutes. I'm just talking about emotional abuse. Let's say someone says, Paige, I'm so sorry that I gave you the book called Nips Up. You're beautiful the way you are. I love you. Would it be a good idea for me to go, oh, okay, that was just a mistake? How many times would you forgive someone? And also, can the act of forgiving someone enable them in a way? Would it have been better for me at that moment to say goodbye forever and then they learn from it and they don't do it to the next person? Can abusers be rehabilitated? Yes, but it's not very easy. The best book I can recommend, and again, you'll have to ignore the pronouns, Lundy Bancroft wrote a book called why does he do that inside the minds of angry, controlling men? And again, he acknowledges that he mainly works with men who have been abusive, but there are plenty of women who can also be abusive. It's the best book that talks about the dynamics of emotional abuse. And he has, for decades, tried to rehabilitate men who were abusive. And it is very, very difficult, in part because they do not accept responsibility Many of them rationalize why they were abusive. Well, you know, she shouldn't have done X. Or they play Darvo. Well, now she's called the police on me and I've lost my job. And so I'm even angrier than I was before. He finds it very, very difficult to rehabilitate people who have been abusive and have a long history of abuse. They always rationalize what they do, and they always minimize what they have done, and they ignore how they made somebody else feel. So yes, for example, if you dropped a date because he was rude to the waitstaff, I myself would probably say that in my text. I would say, you know, how you treated the waitstaff is just not okay with me, and so I think we shouldn't see each other again. Is it your job necessarily to train him to be better for the next person? No, but it also can't hurt. If you can help someone be less abusive and treat other people with more respect, I think it's worth doing, but you're not under any obligation to do so. Very interesting. Obviously, you know, we all want to see people grow and improve. I think people who are abusive can learn to not be abusive. However, I will say, I don't think they can do it with you. I think once someone has abused you, I think the tone has been set in your relationship. And you can wish them well and, and tell them, and they maybe won't do it to the next person. But with you, if you take them back, they're going to keep doing it to you. I think on some level, we tell people how to treat us. And once you tell someone, I'm okay with this behavior, that's what you're going to get the entire relationship. I think it's really hard to go back and tell people how to treat you once you've told them how you're willing to be treated. In my opinion, if someone is abusive to you, and now I would say even like one or two times, I would say cut and run. And 
they can do better for the next person. What's your opinion on that? I agree with you that it can be very difficult to change the dynamics of a relationship once you're in it so that it is more likely that an abuser can learn not to be abusive for a new relationship than for a relationship where the dynamics have already been established. The only thing I would disagree with is the blaming the victim aspect of what you said, that people treat us the way we train them to treat us. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. It puts responsibility on the person who's being abused when the responsibility should fall on the abuser. Yeah, we don't want to blame the victim. Look at what you made me do is a Taylor Swift song that really bleeds into this. So speaking about look at what you made me do, you have some very strong opinions and insights as to infidelity as emotional abuse. Sometimes people cheat in relationships because they feel neglected by someone. Actually, when you look at people who cheat as a one-off, I mean people who only cheat one time in their lives, it's usually because the other person's relationship has withdrawn their attention. Just as a caveat to anyone listening, I've never cheated. That's not how I know about this. When you look at this, attention withdrawal is inherently an emotionally abusive behavior. You think cheating is an emotionally abusive behavior. I'm not giving away the joke here. This is a very common thing with Loretta. What do you think about that? Okay. Nobody makes you cheat. So even if you're unhappy, and what the statistics show is that the vast majority of men who report cheating on a regular basis are actually not unhappy in their marriages. Shirley Glass did a very interesting experiment years ago where she went around and gave questionnaires to men about their cheating behaviors in an airport. You know, they oftentimes were business people who were traveling and whether they had cheated and whether they were unhappy in their marriage. 56% of the men who reported cheating were not unhappy in their marriages. They just liked a little bit on the side. For women that percentage changes. So 34% of women who cheat still report being happy in their marriages. So there clearly are sex differences. Women are more likely to report feeling neglected and not satisfied in their marriages before they cheat. And I have two responses to that. Just like someone being abusive to you doesn't warrant you're being abusive to them. If you are dissatisfied in your relationship, the adult way to handle it is to communicate, ask for therapy, and if you're still not satisfied or the other person refuses to do anything, to leave the relationship. Cheating is not a panacea for feeling lonely in your relationship. In fact, all it's going to do is cause more problems. And the reason that I think that infidelity is abusive is there is no way to accomplish it without lying to your partner, especially if it's a longer term affair, that you are taking emotional resources away from the relationship where maybe if you had invested emotionally in the relationship, then you wouldn't feel lonely. You oftentimes are taking financial resources from the relationship. You're certainly taking time that could have been devoted to the relationship. And the lying, the other person is making decisions on their life based on what they assume is the truth. So if you're lying, even if it's lying by omission, you are taking away the other person's choice to make informed decisions about their own life. And that's not okay. I wish I could upload a photo of Loretta's face right now here. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. We aren't always in control of our emotions. And so everybody puts, you know, little dings in the car of the marriage. Infidelity is taking that car and driving it off a cliff and totaling it. So now the little dings don't make any 
difference anymore. That's not why the car won't run. With infidelity, what you have done is to total the car and all the small things that were in it before really don't matter anymore. I agree with you. The car is totaled. The other thing that happens with infidelity is that oftentimes the person who is cheating starts to denigrate the person who's the victim in this. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is it's a way to justify the affair. Oh, if I keep cutting down the person I'm cheating on, then it justifies why I need to cheat on them because they're less than what I want. The second is that because the person who's cheating is lying consistently, especially if it's a longer term affair, they start to lose respect for the person being cheated on like, oh, he's such an idiot. He doesn't even realize that I'm having an affair. And so the combination of those two things yields many, many behaviors of emotional abuse. So not only lying to the person, but also starting to cut them down so that you can justify your own behavior as a cheater. Yeah, interesting. That's a good point because I know people who have been cheaters and I would not say they initially thought of themselves as emotional abusers. I wouldn't say they had abusive personalities, but yeah, I saw that happen, right? They would go, oh, well, he just wasn't very attentive or she wasn't there when I needed her or I was getting more from someone else. Is this a pathological trait and can it indicate other items of emotional abuse that might show up on later in a relationship? I think a lot of, well, I wasn't getting what I needed from them to justify cheating is a form of DARVO. That if you look at relationships where one person cheated and ask, did they ever approach their partner and say, I'm not happy, can we go to therapy? Hardly ever do cheaters do that. And so then when they're finally caught or they decide, oh, well, now I'm in love with my affair partner, so I'm going to leave, they pull this DARVO thing, well, you weren't doing what I asked of you or you weren't making me happy in these ways. And a lot of it is post hoc justification for their behavior. So we are coming up on time, but I have two final questions for you. What are your opinions on the emotions of anger and also sadness for abusive behaviors, including cheating? Which one is more constructive so anger is directing your emotion outward, right? So you're upset that someone else has treated you this way. Sadness is turning that emotion inward that you feel badly. I think both anger and sadness are very common if one is being emotionally abused. And some people will tip more toward one than the other. Some will have equal amounts and you'll cycle between feeling sad and feeling angry. Anger oftentimes can be a good way to propel yourself to action, that there are some people who can extract themselves from abusive situations just because they've been feeling sad and finally they just think, I can't take this anymore, and they never get angry. But oftentimes getting angry can be a really good motivating force to finally line up your ducks and figure out the way to extract yourself. I would agree with that. You know, there's a song I really love, and it's called slow poison by the bravery and there's this lyric in it that goes if this is my punishment then i want my crime to fit well i don't think one needs to do a crime in order to leave that getting angry is not a crime you know we evolved to feel angry when our goals were thwarted or if we were being mistreated and so anger is a perfectly legitimate feeling it's not a crime it's interesting you say anger is not a crime 
The reason I mentioned that is because I had a friend this year leave a very emotionally abusive relationship, and she was very angry when she did it. And the person she was with, using that anger as a way to continue to try and trap her, being like, you're not treating me well, you're doing these things. And the whole, if this is my punishment, then I want my crime to fit. She was like, okay, well, if you're going to call me angry and you're going to call me a bitch and you're going to do all these things, I'll be one. I'm gone. I don't owe you anything. I'm leaving you. I'm not giving you any kind of recourse, second chance, nothing. That's more of what it was. What would you suggest that a victim do when the abuser takes the emotion, the anger, the sadness, whatever, and tries to use it as a way to trap this person even more? Oh, abusers do tend to do that. So they will take whatever emotion, legitimate emotion, that the person being abused is feeling and try and turn it on them. And I think this is particularly harmful with women because women have been trained that being angry is not socially acceptable. And I'm here to say it is perfectly socially acceptable. Just don't do anything destructive. Extricate yourself. Don't keep engaging. Just remove yourself and you don't need to justify your anger to the person who's abusing you. You don't need to let them use it as a weapon in order to try and get you back either. Just leave. What strategies would you give to someone who's left in an abusive relationship and needs to stay out? Sometimes people who are abusive, even if they're not trying to get you to be back in a relationship with them, they can try to involve themselves in your life in other ways, right? They can be angry and they can try to destroy other relationships you're in. That friend I'm talking about, her ex-boyfriend got her fired from her job. He cut off almost all of her social networks. She's given me permission to talk about this, by the way. What do you do when that happens? I mean, it was so hard for her to leave this relationship. As soon as she did, he got her fired from her job, cut off all of her friends, started dating her best friend, lots of stuff. I can't imagine what that would have been like with children, with a house together. What would you say to men and women in those situations or any situation like this? It is very hard. And there are many abusers who will do what they can to get revenge on somebody who has left them. And that's very sad that he was able to successfully get her fired. All I can say is no contact, no contact, no contact. And in the meantime, if you've lost most of your social support network, find a new one. There are now communities online with people who have been in emotionally abusive relationships. There are all kinds of workshops that you can sign up for. So for example, Kim Saeed, S-A-A-E-D, has great resources about leaving an abuser for infidelity. I can highly recommend chumplady.com. Find a community that understands what you're going through and will give you support and will validate your choice to leave. And sometimes, yes, you are going to have to reconstruct your whole life. That's why it's important to pay attention to yellow flags so that you can avoid emotionally abusive relationships before you're so entrenched that you are going to end up losing a lot if you leave. Much easier to not lose as much if you leave earlier. I would agree with that. As soon as you see something, as soon as you see a yellow or red flag, look, there are plenty of fish in the sea. What about after someone leaves? What behaviors promote post-traumatic growth? How can someone take what happened to them and use it to create good in their lives? What would you recommend that they do? The best thing for post-relationship growth, again, is social support. Finding a therapist or somebody who's supportive and can talk things through you. And you don't want to put that huge a burden on your friends who may not have expertise in an area. 
and that's why therapists can often be good. But, you know, if you run across a therapist who's invalidating you, then switch therapists. That you need to find someone, if you've been emotionally abused for any length of time, who is going to validate you, not blame the victim, and then help you figure out the path to getting back on track, both for your own personal growth, but then also getting your life back on track. So for example, your friend who lost her friends, how is she going to get another friend's group? How is she going to regain a job? So there are practical things that she has to think of. For somebody who is getting divorced with children, there are lots of practical things that you're going to need some help thinking about, okay, how can I make sure that my kids are taken care of? Social support network is probably the most important. And if you can, get access to somebody with expertise. So we're coming up on time. You've been really a lovely guest. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise on this subject. I know it's very, very near and dear to your heart. If you're going to give one last piece of advice to someone thinking about leaving an emotionally abusive relationship or someone who's freshly out of one, what would you say to them? I would say know your self-worth, know what you're willing to tolerate and what you're not, and act accordingly. And don't give up your own integrity. Just because you're leaving an emotionally abusive relationship doesn't mean you then have to behave badly. Know who you are. Thank you so much, Loretta. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Paige. It's been a pleasure. Sweet and I, I'm accidentally mean. 
So good, you never find.